Well, good morning, friends. Pastor Brandon invites you to keep your Bibles open uh, to Matthew chapter 5 uh, as we continue our series through the surprising way of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, and what Christ reveals to us about what it looks like to walk in His way, to follow Him uh, as He leads us and as He rules us as our King. Uh, if you are familiar with the, the Sermon on the Mount or if you've been with us through this series so far, you'll remember that it kind of starts with the Beatitudes, with the kingdom virtues. Uh, this is what it looks like to live as part of God's kingdom. And, and since introducing that, Jesus has transitioned now to uh, connecting the dots between that opening portrait of life in his kingdom and God's old covenant, the Old Testament law uh, that was given to Israel. Jesus wants to show that what he has come to do is not to throw all of that away and start over with something new, but to fulfill it. He has come to fulfill what God has promised and envisioned from the beginning. But part of that, central to that claim of, of the, the fact that Jesus and his kingdom are fulfilling the law, is showing the difference between what it looks like to keep God's law according to God's kingdom versus what the religious leaders of his day were doing with that law. Groups like the scribes and the Pharisees, folks who were entirely content to keep the law on the surface, to go through the motions, to uh, keep the letter of the law and so that everybody could see and praise them for it. They'd announce it you know, on Facebook and call in the, the mariachi band to celebrate all that they were doing. And yet, that obedience didn't come from the heart. It didn't come from the heart. It was superficial. It was self-righteous. And therefore, it didn't reflect the actual purpose of God's law. It was a show. Uh, the religious leaders were putting on a show. And Jesus is entirely different. He takes us below the surface to the heart. He shows us that according to his kingdom, true righteousness comes from a heart that has been changed by the gospel. And that is a righteousness that exceeds the scribes, the Pharisees, the other religious leaders of Jesus' day. And so uh, from chapter 5, 21 through the end of chapter 5, Jesus is, is unpacking that difference, that difference between the scribes and the Pharisees and their superficial obedience versus a true righteousness that comes from the heart. And he's offering six corrections to the ways that those religious leaders would approach the law. Last week, Pastor Keith introduced us to the first correction, uh, the fact that keeping the sixth commandment, that you shall not murder, is not just about checking a box that says, yes, I've never actually killed somebody, right? It, it takes us below the surface to the heart, the posture of our heart toward one another, and the danger of allowing our anger to escalate unchecked. And what that causes, that we are called not to seek revenge, but to be peacemakers who seek reconciliation. That's true righteousness that comes from the heart. Well, this morning, as we look at verses 27 to 32, we come to a, a rather sensitive but very significant topic, and that is what, is what does it mean to follow Jesus with respect to marriage sex, and divorce. What does it mean to follow Jesus with respect to marriage, sex, and divorce? 
And that, that's a sensitive topic, right? It's a sensitive topic uh, because it's rather personal. It's very personal. And frankly, it's an area in which many of us have made mistakes. Many of us have made mistakes, and many of us have been impacted by the mistakes that others have made. Uh, some of us grew up in homes that were torn apart by marital unfaithfulness or, or divorce. Uh, some of us live in those homes right now. Uh, some of us have been divorced. Uh, perhaps we're remarried, uh, or maybe we're married to a divorced person, uh, and some of those divorces weren't for the right reasons. Some of us are involved sexually with somebody that we're not married to. Some of us simply think and fantasize about that. Uh, but wherever we sit, no matter our story, all of us are impacted in some way by this text. It's very personal, and it's a very sensitive topic. And yet it's also a very significant topic. Because contrary to popular opinion, uh, divorce, marriage, sex, those are not ideas that are just floating out there for us to do with them whatever we like. Jesus has an opinion on them. And the church has an opportunity to shine the unique light of Christ into the world through what we do with them. And, and Jesus is... Uh, Opinion, that's a kind of a weak word for it, right? Jesus' uh, divinely authoritative view is quite surprising when you compare it to this world, right? And even to some of our own expectations. But Jesus not only has the authority to determine the shape and the purpose of sex and marriage, he also has the authority to judge those who disregard or overturn his views. This is a significant topic. We don't always believe that, but right here, as he lays out his vision for kingdom living, under his authority, he gives us his decree that marriage is a holy covenant and sex is a holy activity. Both have been designed by God and for God and his kingdom purposes. It's what we're going to see. And so my prayer this morning is that we would deal with this subject sensitively. And when we come to this, wherever we're at, whoever we are, that we come to this, all of us, knowing that we are sinners in need of God's grace. I want to deal sensitively with it. But I also want to de deal seriously with it. Because to whatever extent that we have ignored or, or sought to overturn or, or, or go against God's vision, that our, our prayer is that the Spirit of God would convict us of that and would show us the path of grace to follow Jesus in repentance on a subject that our world would like to just make up our own rules for. So that's my prayer, that we would deal sensitively but seriously with an important part of following Jesus? What does it look like to follow Jesus with respect to marriage and sex? And in terms of the, the verses itself, the two sections we're looking at, verses 27 to 30 and 31 to 32, you'll notice that they're, they're united by that common subject of adultery and marriage, 
right? That, that word is, is repeated several times, verses 27 to 28. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he's dealing with that in the first part of our passage. And then he picks up the same subject in the second part. In verse 32, I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So that word, adultery, dominates these two sections, which is why we're treating them together. Um, But what in the world does the Bible mean by adultery? What are we talking about? According to Scripture, uh, adultery is engaging in sexual activity with someone who is not your spouse or with someone else's spouse, right? It's, It's sexual sin that breaks the marriage covenant. Uh, it's in, in, under the Mosaic law, that, that sexual sin that breaks the marriage covenant, that was actually punishable by death. It was a big deal because marriage and sex are a big deal. They are holy to God. Marriage is a holy covenant and sex is a holy activity. Both are designed by God for God and his kingdom purposes, which means he has the right to say what they're for and how they should be enjoyed according to his kingdom. Now, you think of that concept of holiness. You know, it's a word we use a lot at church, but we don't always use it in everyday life. What do we mean by holy or how do you treat something as holy? Um, you know, we, we might not use the word, but we actually do this uh, at home all the time. All of us, mo- almost all of us certainly, have you know, dishes in our house that are set apart for special occasions and that have a special value to them, right? We, that's what to treat something holy is to recognize its purpose and respect its value. Nobody drains their lawnmower oil into the crystal salad bowl, right? You don't do that. You'll get in big trouble if you try and do that. Nobody throws away grandma's china at the end of dinner, right? China and chinette are two different things. We don't do that. We recognize the, the special purpose. We pull this out for these special occasions, and we recognize the precious value. We handle it carefully. You don't just throw it into the dishwasher like, like the plastic kids stuff, right? You set it in there gently so that it's not going to clang against the other dishes and chip or something like that. We, we treasure it, right? We recognize its purpose. We respect its value. We treat it as holy, if you will. Well, in the same way, marriage is holy. Marriage and sex have a special purpose and a precious value, before God, and a, a, a purpose and value that have been assigned by God himself. They're not, uh, they're not common and disposable, but holy. Marriage was God's idea, after all, and within marriage, sex. Now, if you go all the way back to the beginning at, at Genesis chapter 2, verses 20 to 24, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man. He brought her to the man, and the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman 
for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. God invented marriage. His idea. He's the author of it. He designed it for the deepest level of companionship and completion, not least the calling to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so according to God's design, marriage is meant to be a permanent, exclusive, and public commitment between one man and one woman to share every part of their lives with each other. That's the design. It's meant to be a permanent, exclusive, public commitment between one man and one woman to share every part of their lives with each other. It is a holy institution. And within marriage, sex is a holy activity. It's the consummation of that deepest union and commitment within human relationships. There's no other relational context in which sexual activity is permissible according to Scripture. This is the, bond, the bonds of marriage. But as, you know, that's just looking at the human level, right? That's looking at the human plane, how important and significant it is. That's not even all that Scripture tells us about marriage, though. If you step back and look at it from an even higher and more heavenly perspective, there's, there's a greater design or aspect of, of God's design for marriage, namely that it's meant to display his relationship with his people. It's meant to be a display of his steadfast commitment to his people and a foreshadow of our spiritual union with Christ. Marriage is much bigger than you and your spouse. It's much bigger than that. You know, when the Apostle Paul uh, is giving instructions about uh, how to treat each other in marriage, Ephesians 5 is one of the most famous passages where Scripture talks about the different ways we interact and treat one another. He keeps tying his instructions to each spouse to uh, making this comparison or analogy with Christ's relationship to his church. So he doesn't just say, husbands, love your wives. Uh, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's a picture involved in the husband's love. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. There's this picture, this relationship between Christ and the church working. And then he gets to the end of the, his instructions in verse 32, and he just comes out and tells us, like, this mystery is profound, this mystery of marriage, but I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Like, the whole purpose, God in, the whole reason God invented marriage was so that he would have a ready analogy to reveal to us what his relationship with us is supposed to look like, and that, the, that his church would have a living sermon for the world to see of what that relationship should be. And then within marriage... As J. Thomas and Gerald Highstand explain, God created sex to serve as a living portrait of the life-changing spiritual union that a believer has with God through Christ. And that's, that's the imagery Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 6, that just as the wife and the husband become one, so through faith in Jesus, we are united with God in the most intimate way possible. 
to the point that whenever God wants to use a metaphor, one of the most common metaphors in the Old Testament for Israel's idolatry is the metaphor of adultery or prostitution. When Israel gave their worship to someone other than God, they were cheating on God. That was the picture. You know, for instance, Jeremiah 3 verse 9 says, Because Israel took her, her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. That's a metaphor. But it's a metaphor for the spiritual idolatry that Israel was committing. Because these things are meant to display the union that we have with God. And so God's commands about the exclusivity, they're not arbitrary. When God tells us, here's what marriage should look like, here's how you should operate within it, those are not arbitrary rules. The exclusivity, the permanence, the love, the loyalty, all of that is meant to be a picture of our relationship with God. It's meant to reveal to us what God's steadfast love looks like, what our union with him looks like. And so, when you remove sex from marriage, or when you dissolve a marriage through divorce, what does that do to the picture? It distorts it, right? It distorts the picture. It, it thwarts the purpose. It despises that precious value. And, and not just the picture, but often the lives of those through whom that picture was meant to be displayed. And so God prohibits adultery because of the holiness of marriage and sex. He prohibits adultery because of the holiness of marriage and sex. Now, that's kind of the picture. That's the standard, the, the biblical theology of marriage, if you will. Now, come back to Matthew 5 and Jesus' sermon here as he's correcting the assumptions of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not as though the scribes and Pharisees thought that divorce was okay. They, they agreed. They all agreed it was wrong. Unlike many in our world today who don't see any problem with it, they all agreed it was wrong. They just thought that they could keep the letter of the law on the surface and continue to do whatever they wanted from the heart, right? They, they, they thought they could compartmentalize their obedience. So as long as they looked like they were keeping the law, then what was going on below wasn't that big a deal. And Jesus will have none of that. He will have none of that. And, and it's important to remember what Christ is addressing here. He's not looking out at the world around God's people and, and criticizing the way that they live. I mean, that's, that's easy enough to do, right? The, our world has gone completely insane when it comes to things like marriage and sex. But, but what Jesus is addressing is the extent to which that insanity has invaded God's people. Those who would try to keep the law and please God and yet find the escape hatch to continue living however they want. That's what Christ is addressing here. And there were two ways that the religious leaders attempted to keep the letter of the law with respect to marriage and sex and yet still live however they wanted. Uh, two ways we're tempted to do the same thing today. And the first was with respect to lust. The first was with respect to lust. So if you look at verse 27 again, Jesus says, you've heard it that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, notice Jesus is not allowing us to hang out on the surface. He is dragging us below the surface, exposing our hearts. That's what he's addressing. And, and you know, some of us may sit here and, and read his words and think, well, that just kind of seems a little bit prudish. I mean, is, is there really any harm in looking? Like, can't you just read the menu as long as you don't order or something like that? Like, that's what we try and think. We compartmentalize those things. But, but again, Jesus has no tolerance for that. You, you can't separate the heart from the actions. That's the very sentiment he's correcting. And, and the problem, again, just to clarify a few things, the problem is not noticing an attractive person or even the temptation to lust after someone. The problem is giving into that temptation, feeding it, fueling it, nursing it with our imagination, looking with lustful intent, as Jesus says. Neither is the problem sexual desire itself. Sometimes in our, in our fear against uh, sexual sin, we, we create extra rules and laws that make the whole thing this dirty endeavor. And that too is to go against God's design. Sex was invented by God for marriage, right? The problem is not sexual desire itself. Within the context of marriage, that is a beautiful, happy, and holy thing. The problem is when we feed those desires outside of that covenant relationship and when we direct them to someone who doesn't belong to us, like someone who's not bound together in marriage with us. Uh, you might uh, think of it this way, that, that in a lot of ways, lust is a sexual covetousness. You know, so you think of coveting, you know, it's wanting for yourself what rightfully belongs to somebody else. It's not wrong to want for yourself what rightfully belongs to you. There's no, no sin in that. But if it's actually somebody else's, that's where the sin tempts, uh, steps in. And so lust is, is wanting someone sexually who doesn't actually belong to you. You're not bound to each other in that covenant. Whereas Paul describes the husband has authority over the wife, the wife over the husband. There's this shared union there. We don't have that. You are coveting someone sexually. And whether that's des that desire is directed to you know, someone you see on the street or a picture on a magazine in the checkout stand or, or the ungodly porn industry that just dehumanizes uh, and, and ob objectifies people, whatever shape it takes, you may never touch anybody, but you can still commit adultery in your heart, according to Christ. It removes sex from the bond of marriage, it thwarts the purpose, it cheapens the value. It cheapens the value. And moreover, lust is one of those secret sins that we think that, you know, we can just kind of hide and fly under radar, and yet it eats at our souls from the inside. Uh, and it sets us up for greater failure. I mean, you think of, just like with anger last week, if you leave that anger unchecked and it escalates, it's going to lead to something worse. In the same way, as Kent Hughes writes, sensual sins are preceded by sensual fantasies. No sensual sin was ever committed that was not first imagined. Think about that. No sensual sin was ever committed 
that was not first imagined. And so walking in the way of faithfulness with respect to marriage is not just what we do with our bodies, but what we linger on and long for with our hearts. What we linger on and long for with our hearts. So that's the first way that the the Pharisees were attempting to get around the law and still look good in the process. The second way is... uh, uh, that they, they thought, you know, as long as we keep the letter of the law, we, we can still get what we want out of life and sex, was to make sure that they were simply filling out the proper paperwork when it comes to divorce. That's what Jesus addresses in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a, a certificate of divorce. Now, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 24.1 here. And what he's challenging here is not the law itself. He's not challenging what what Deuteronomy 24.1 says, but rather what the religious leaders were doing with it. They were using it as an escape hatch to look good on the surface and get away with sexual sin in the process. Uh, If you keep reading through Matthew's gospel, this whole conversation comes up a second time in Matthew 19. And the Pharisees are trying to test Jesus. Uh, they're, they're, they ask him a question. You know, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? There was a debate among the rabbis and the Pharisees at that time uh, over what are the precise grounds for divorce. And, and one school taught that sexual sin was the only legitimate grounds. And another school taught, well, if she burns your dinner and you don't like it, that's a legitimate ground. You know, they had different, uh, different debates there just as we have different debates today, right? You know, I I don't love them anymore. Is that legitimate grounds? Or we got married too young? Or, you know, we, we have those same debates. But there in Matthew 19, Jesus says to them, instead of taking the bait and playing their game, he says to them, you basically, you miss the point. You miss the point. Go back to the beginning And look at the purpose of marriage to begin with. Instead of obsessing over the escape clause, remember what the whole thing was for. He takes them back to Genesis. Matthew 19, verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God, therefore, has joined together, let not man separate. Because if you separate it, the picture is ruined. The, pre- the, the purpose is thwarted. The value is despised, and the lives are destroyed. And so Jesus basically says, stop trying to find the loopholes and start keeping your word. Start keeping your promise and honoring the marriage that you have. Walk in the way of faithfulness. But the Pharisees, they won't drop it. Uh, They keep going in Matthew 19. They still want to know, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Listen to Jesus' answer. He says to them, because of the hardness, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another 
commits adultery. In other words, he's saying divorce was not part of the design, but because we live in a sinful world, a fallen world, then Moses was making a concession to protect the vulnerable. That's why he allowed them. He didn't command them. He allowed them to write a certificate of divorce in order to protect the vulnerable wife. So, I mean, in, in that uh, ancient world, in the ancient world, a mar- an adult woman's livelihood was essentially contingent on being married to somebody. Like they couldn't own property and, and things like that. And so without being married... If, if some husband divorces his wife, how in the world will she be cared for unless she's allowed to get married to somebody else? But how do you prove that without some certificate saying they're not actually married anymore? What man in his right mind is going to take someone in and marry them and risk being accused of, a, of committing adultery, which carries a capital punishment? Right? So the divorce certificate was a protection for the vulnerable party. It was a concession made to protect the vulnerable. That was the purpose in Deuteronomy. Now again, fast forward to Matthew 5. As Sinclair Sinclair Ferguson points out, a law that was clearly intended to safeguard the women in Israel was turned into an escape clause for self-indulgent men. They took this law that was designed to protect the vulnerable and said, hey, here's the, here's the loophole for me to live my best life however I wanted to find that. That's what Jesus is correcting. He will have none of that. That is not a true righteousness that does not come from a heart that actually honors God's law. It uses God's law to look good while continuing to follow my own laws however I want to write them. In fact, Jesus says in both Matthew 5.32 and chapter 19, verse 9, that if you divorce your spouse without proper cause and they remarry someone else, you make them an adulterer because they should still be married to you. And similarly, if you marry a, a divorced person who is divorced without proper cause, you commit adultery because they should still be married to their first spouse. Serious, right? But, but notice also, I said, without proper cause. Because as holy as marriage is, there are two exceptions God gives. Again, because of the hardness of heart, because we live in a broken world, there are two exceptions that Scripture gives where divorce is permissible even though it's never required or commanded. It's not always sinful, uh, though it's always caused by sin somehow. But it's not always sinful. Uh, And if it can be said that divorce can be permissible, the implication is therefore that remarriage is permissible as well. Because again, the whole purpose of the certificate in Deuteronomy 24 was to free the vulnerable spouse for remarriage. And of those two exceptions, Paul deals with one of them in 1 Corinthians 7, when a a non-believing spouse abandons a believer. We don't have time to look at that this morning. Um, and Jesus deals with the other one here in Matthew 5 and again later in chapter 19, and that is namely sexual immorality or sexual sin. That, the term used there is kind of the umbrella term for sexual sin. And, and I think that Jesus retains this exception, uh, this, this, this occasion in which divorce is permissible, 
for the exact same reasons that Moses made his concession back in, in, in Deuteronomy 24. It's for the protection of the vulnerable. It's not an escape clause for you to live however you want, but when somebody breaks their covenant in an irreparable way, it's the protection of the vulnerable party. It's never required, and, and forgiveness and, and reconciliation is always preferable. That's always the path we want to seek for first, just as God sought to be reconciled with his wayward wife. As we ran and gave our worship to other gods, Jesus came and sought us in our unfaithfulness. So we want to do that. And yet the reality is, because we're in a fallen world, and that final wedding supper of the Lamb is yet in the future, uh, divorce is permissible in cases where the marital covenant has been broken through sexual sin or abandonment. And many would would include abuse in that abandonment category because it's a functional abandonment of that that person. You may be in the same home, but you are breaking your covenant through through that abuse. And, And sadly, there are times when a vulnerable spouse needs that protection. I mean, we... We should never need it, but unfortunately, there are times when when it's necessary. The wife whose husband won't stop sleeping with every client. The husband whose wife decides to up and leave and go restart her life with someone else, right? None of that should happen, but it does happen, And, and so God creates a protection for those who are on the wounded side of that. Because of the hardness of our hearts, that exception remains. And so walking in the way of faithfulness with respect to marriage and sex, it means honoring marriage as a holy covenant and sex as a holy activity designed by God for God and his kingdom purposes. And so you look at all of that, we, we go below the surface, we examine our hearts that have been exposed by this passage, put all of that together, and, and we come to the uncomfortable realization, who among us can stand before a passage like this innocent? Right. And wh- whether our adultery takes a literal form or, or a the form of looking lustfully at someone, whether it takes the form of a, of a divorce or a remarriage that shouldn't have happened, who among us can really claim innocence before Matthew 5? And, and therefore, how do we, with our unclean hands and our impure hearts, draw near to God or, or follow Jesus as, as king? How in the world is it possible to walk in the way of faithfulness if that's what faithfulness means? Well, this is where we have to remember that higher and more heavenly purpose of marriage. That even though we, in our sin, are are so often unfaithful to God and to one another, Christ, our bridegroom, is always faithful. He's always faithful. He is the great king who crossed the divide of heaven and earth, to slay the dragon and to win his bride. And he did that at the cost of his own life. 
So you think of, of every, every lustful glance, every bitter word we use to cut down our spouse, every act of adultery, whether spiritual, emotional, or physical, all of that Christ took on the cross, bore it in our place to deal with that punishment of death that the law prescribed so that we could be cleansed and redeemed and forgiven and finally set in a place where we can actually walk with Jesus with respect to marriage and, and, and sex in faithfulness that comes from his grace and it is fueled by his spirit. He is the only one that makes true righteousness possible. Ephesians tells us, this is what Christ did for us. That Christ, our bridegroom, loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Because we're not holy on our own. But he gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That is the bride of Christ bought through the blood of Christ. Through faith in Jesus, we are forgiven, we're cleansed, we're purified, and we are united with God in the most intimate way possible. Through our union with Jesus, therefore, we are poised to treat marriage and sex with the honor and respect that they deserve, to recognize their holy purpose, to cherish their special value, and so to walk with Jesus. It's his gospel and only his gospel that makes faithfulness in marriage possible. And so if you are married this morning, uh, by way of application, I want to say this to you. Stay married. That's the first application. Stay married. Cherish your marriage. Do not presume upon it, but nurture it. Invest in it. Fight for it. Spend time together in God's word, in prayer, Spend time together away from the kids. And I know that's next to impossible in some seasons of life. We are in that season. It's hard. We literally sat down to get our planners out the other day and figure out how in the world are we going to actually spend time where we're not interrupted three minutes into the conversation. <laughs> it's hard, but it's worth fighting to figure it out. It's worth it. Older couples, spend time with older couples, younger couples, spend time with older couples, learn from them. They've been there. They get it. They know that there's, there's hope and sanity somewhere on the other side of this thing, right? And, and older couples, take the younger couple's kids from them so that they can go spend time together sometimes, right? Invest in your marriages. Think about the promises that you made, the, the, the promise of God's covenant to you, and by grace, seek to reflect that together. And if you need help, get help. Get help in your marriage. There is no shame whatsoever 
in raising a flag and saying, we need someone to help us figure this out. We are bat- you know, beating our heads together. We don't know the next step. We need help. There is no shame in that whatsoever. Uh, that's one of the reasons we have a biblical counseling ministry to help people come alongside them as they sort some of those things out. If you're thinking about divorce, slow down and, and talk to somebody who will counsel you from the gospel. There are occasions where that's the only thing that can be done. We hate that that's true, but it's true. But make sure you're thinking carefully through it and listening and, and getting that counsel from the gospel. And Unfortunately, this has to be said, but if you are in danger, tell somebody that you trust today. Abuse should never be tolerated in a marriage context. It's never acceptable. Never. So that's my word to those who are married. Now, to those among us who are divorced because our former spouse committed sexual sin or abandoned us, you know, we wanted to save the marriage. We wanted, but we, for reasons that we could not control, were forced out of it. This is what I want to say to you, that our hearts break for you, that we love you, and that it was not right for you to be treated that way. We do not look down on you. It wasn't your fault. And nobody should look down on you for that. You're not a second-class citizen in the church. And there is hope and healing through Christ. And we want to be family to you and walk with you through that. To those among us who are divorced and shouldn't be, maybe even remarried now, but, but that divorce was not because of sexual sin or uh, abandonment by a non-believer, I want to say this to you. We love you too. We love you too. And there is forgiveness with repentance. There is forgiveness with repentance. Tearing apart what God has joined together is no small thing. It's serious. But neither is it the unpardonable sin. And there is forgiveness with repentance. And, and what repentance looks like in that situation is acknowledging your sin for what it is, confessing it to those who were hurt by it, and remaining as you are. So that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, to remain as you are. If you are single on the other side of that, remain as you are. Don't get remarried unless it's to the person that you were formerly married to. If you're already remarried, remain as you are. Don't add the sin of divorce to a marriage that started in sin. Right? Confess, seek forgiveness, remain as you are, and know that there is grace to, to heal and to follow Jesus. And, and if you're divorced, no matter what, you're, for whatever reason, if that's part of your story, the other thing I want you to know is you do not have to walk through that alone. You don't have to walk through that alone. Again, we have a, a, a biblical counseling ministry available. We have a divorce care class that meets every Thursday. 
Those are for you to help you walk with Jesus and find healing. There are men and women in this church who can look you in the eye and say, I get it. I've been there. I know what you're going through. And if you have Jesus, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay because he's enough. You do not have to go through that alone. And finally, to, to all of us, everyone, single, married, divorced, remarried, all of us, I want to say this. Honor the holiness of marriage and flee from sexual immorality. Honor the holiness of marriage and flee from sexual immorality. Do not cozy up to it and see how close you can get without getting burned. Fight. Fight it as though you are fighting for life itself with all the power of God's Spirit, uh, which is not easy. I mean, that is often a grueling battle, and, and it sometimes calls for radical steps of obedience. I mean, look at Jesus' exhortation in, in Matthew 5, 29 to 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And that, I mean, that's an incredibly graphic image, right? Um, and it, obviously, it is hyperbole, but, but we don't want to miss the weight and gravity the radical nature of repentance that Jesus is calling us to uh, and just write off that hyperbole. Sometimes obedience means doing things that the world would look at and say, that's crazy, but Jesus is worth it and the marriage is worth it, right? Taking radical steps of repentance. If your eye is causing you to sin because of what you're looking at, get rid of what you're looking at the TV, the phone, whatever it is. In the world, how can you live without a phone today? Is Jesus worth that? Or, or giving the passcode to your spouse so they can control when you get on? That sounds crazy. That sounds, is Jesus worth that? Is your marriage worth that? If that's what it takes, are we willing to do whatever it takes to walk in holiness? That's radical repentance and obedience. It's not mutilation. Jesus is not calling for mutilation, but mortification. That's what Paul calls it. It's the mortification of sin. We are putting it to death. As, as John Owen used to say, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We must put it to death because Jesus is worth it and marriage and holiness is worth it. Walking in the way of faithfulness with respect to marriage and sex calls for radical repentance and a radical dependence on the gospel of Christ. It's the gospel that makes faithfulness possible. As the old hymn reminds us, again, we, we consider our hearts, we look at this passage, we see, we see the mess before us, but that old hymn reminds us, what can wash away my sin? All of this sin that has just been bleh, exposed right out there. What can wash away my sin? Nothing 
but the blood of Jesus? What can make me whole again? You think of how our lives are broken and destroyed by all of this stuff. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is my hope and peace. This is my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's what we've got. And it's enough. Or as we're, we're going to sing in just a moment, Jesus' invitation to us, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Well, how is that possible when I've lived how I've lived? Because forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Christ. Jesus is enough. And he's worth it. He's worth it. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, how, how can we look into your word and see the mirror of our lives that exposes so much of how we've fallen short? Uh, Lord, we, we confess our great need for you, and yet we praise you that that is exactly what you sent your Son to redeem us from. So, Lord, may we be a church that takes your gospel seriously with respect to marriage and sex. May we be a church marked by repentance, by accountability, by transformation. May we shine the unique light of Christ. Not that says, hey, look at us, we did it all perfect. But hey, look at the mess we made and how Jesus cleans it up. Lord, may the sufficiency of Christ be displayed in our marriages, in our relationships. For your glory, Lord, and for our good, it's in Jesus' name we pray.